The recent advances in generative artificial intelligence have sparked concerns about the safety of AI. The National Security Agency is now setting up a new organization dedicated to securing AI technologies from U.S. adversaries. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with more. Justin, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you, Eric? I'm good. I'm good. So why don't you tell us more about this new AI center? Yeah, the NSA is establishing something called the Artificial Intelligence Security Center. It's going to be housed at the agency's Cybersecurity Collaboration Center, which is actually a kind of public-facing entity of sorts. It's outside the gates of the NSA headquarters, and it actually is where the NSA does a lot of unclassified work with industry. And so along those same lines, this AI security center will be working with industry, national labs, and academia on securing AI. NSA Director General Paul Nakasone broke that news during an event at the National Press Club last week. Here's what he had to say about where the U.S. is with AI and why they're setting up this center. Today, the U.S. leads in this critical area, but this lead should not be taken for granted. Our adversaries, who have for decades used theft and exploitation of our intellectual property to advance their interests, will seek to co-opt our advances in AI and corrupt our application of it. That's the head of the NSA, General Paul Nakasone there. So what does the NSA mean by AI security? Yeah, it's it's kind of similar to cybersecurity, but there are a a few key differences. I mean, the similarities are that the NSA here wants to leverage what they know about foreign intelligence uh, in terms of, you know, what how they might be uh, attacking key AI systems. They want to contribute to the development of best practices, principles, guidelines, things like that for AI security. And they want to ultimately promote the secure use of AI within both classified systems and more broadly across the defense industrial base, which is where the NSA has some security responsibilities. But, you know, there's, there's a few differences in terms of, you know, how AI is, as you know, a little bit autonomous and, and can act on its own in certain cases. Here's what Nakasone said about AI security. AI security is about protecting AI systems from learning doing and revealing the wrong thing. It is a set of practices to protect AI systems and life cycles from digital attacks, theft, and damage. We must build a robust understanding of AI vulnerabilities, foreign intelligence threats to these AI systems, and ways to encounter the threat in order to have AI security. And once again, that's NSA Director General Paul Nakasone speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. So, Justin, how does this fit into the broader trends when it comes to the government's adoption of AI? Yeah, as you can imagine, you know, agency leaders have been grappling with these rapid advancements that have happened uh, publicly with, with, you know, chat GPT, especially intelligence agencies. They're kind of considering their knowledge based agencies. They're considering how these different things are going to affect their missions. And, and, you know, more generally, agencies are really looking at how to, you know, quote unquote, harness AI, how to quickly move out in this space. A lot of them are setting up chief AI officer organizations. So it's a lot of there's a lot of focus on the speed of adoption right now. This NSA center is is actually really one of the first dedicated organizations we've seen established to look at the security piece of AI in governments. And I, you know, there are other organizations that are of course focused on that NIST, CISA, but this NSA center is is really going to be a, a focal point, at least from the national security side when it comes to securing AI. 
AI is definitely the hottest trend right now in government technology, but this can't be the only new technology development that NSA is working on. What else are they looking to develop? Yeah, there's another interesting development last month. The NSA is establishing uh, what it calls an innovation pipeline focused specifically on the competition with China and, and solving some of the NSA's most pressing challenges there. It's something that's still under development. The NSA's assistant deputy director for China said that industry can probably will probably hear more about it in the coming months and into the new year. It might become a little bit more fully baked. But this is really focused on, you know, technology and China within the NSA. And of course, the the NSA has, as with a lot of other agencies, have been focused on China uh, specifically lately. Last year, the NSA created a China uh, outcomes group that looked at ways that the NSA could really look at that competition with China and, and focus its resources. And this is just another outcome here is now there's going to be this innovation pipeline of sorts to focus on kind of technology and the technological aspect of the China competition. Well, it's going to need industry help probably to make it successful. So how does the NSA want to work with the technology sector to accomplish that goal? Yeah, the, the NSA is definitely uh, trying to open up a little bit more, I think, when it comes to working uh, with industry. David Frederick, he's the deputy assistant director for China at the NSA. He says that, you know, DOD broadly has been really working uh, in the innovation space to to get closer with startups and small businesses through things like the Defense Innovation Unit. But he acknowledged that it's often difficult for smaller and medium-sized businesses to work with DOD and the NSA. Here's what he said about that. What I would like to see is more early engagement about overarching requirements. And when I say requirements, I don't mean specifications, but broad challenge problems. What are some of the innovation challenge problems? I think that's uh, you know something that DOD could, and NSA could improve upon is how do we communicate about our strategic gaps in a way that helps small companies and medium-sized companies think about ways to plug in and bring value. And again, that's David Frederick, Deputy Assistant Director for China at the NSA. All righty. Well, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thank you so much for your coverage on this. All right. Thank you, Eric. And you can find more of Justin's writing written by him, not a robot, at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role 
with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. 
your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.